0: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
1: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get 7 days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 a month. Less much, much better. Just go to Mizora.com. musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
0: Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G Advanced Network solutions can do for your business at tmobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.
2: Pushkin. When Riza put the nine members of the Wu-Tang clan together, he didn't just form a rap group. He created a universe. Their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, was released in 1993, at the peak of what many consider to be the golden age of hip-hop. It was so packed with classic releases that, if you can believe it, Snoop's Doggy Style, Tribe's Midnight Marauders, and Wu's 36 Chambers all came out in the same month. But Wu-Tang was different. Sonically, RZA produced dark and gritty beats by manipulating old soul samples and splicing together sound bites from kung fu films. And lyrically, all nine members had a unique style that was untouchable. RZA spent three decades as one of hip-hop's elite producers, and has gone on to become an actor, director, and film composer, working with people like Quentin Tarantino, Bill Murray, and Denzel Washington. Rick Rubin caught up with RZA recently on Zoom. RZA says his creativity is peaking in quarantine. He reminisces with Rick about running around Staten Island with ODB as a kid, He also talks about the time he almost left everything behind to move to Wu-Tang Mountain in China. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and RZA.
3: What's been going on, man? Man, yo, I've been sitting in my house, doing doing Zooms. (laughs) But it's been good, because for me, um, I have the writer's room going for season two of uh, American Saga. So a lot of work is getting done, ironically. Like people are still working and, and we're actually on schedule because you know in the midst of all this world confusion.
4: There's certainly less distractions from the outside world. So it's a good time to get work
3: done. I got to agree, especially the kind of work that we do, creative work, uh, it's, like it's been, for me, my creativity is, 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 is peaking in a way, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's like I've been in the gym and I've got creative muscles that I need to use and they, they're ready to use. I've been playing with the MPC. Uh, I mean, I, I think I made about like 15 beats during the quarantine so far. Incredible. That's a, yeah, that's a nice amount. I'm usually, that it usually take a year to get that many, you know what I mean? From the way I've been working in the film. But being home uh, every day, you know what it is, right? The hours we use for commuting <laughs> is gone, right? Yeah. So those hours now come back to me, and I get to play it, play, play in those hours.
4: How, how has your relationship to making beats changed from when you were starting to now?
3: Wow. Um, the relationship changed in the sense of, before, I think I made beats with a purpose of... Uh, a purpose. You know what I mean? A purpose of, it's going to be a record, a purpose of maybe I'm going to get some money for it, a purpose of being the best. Uh, I mean, I definitely wanted to be the best producer or the best hip-hop producer in the world. I had that, had that summer-off feeling. And now when I make it, I just make it as an expression of, a, of, of almost like uh, just entertaining myself. You know what I mean? There's no goal. There's no purpose for it. It's just like I'm just doing it, like just like if I was playing a video game. That's if I was playing my piano, my beat machine becomes that fun moment for me to go down DJ a little bit of my OD on my DJ set, take a couple of samples, you know what I mean? Find some new synth sounds. It's just, it's just that's my. Thing. I'm, I'm entertained by that. You
4: think if you could zoom out and look over your work from earlier when it was goal oriented to now, you think that the goal oriented part? of your old work is what
3: drove it or was it just one of the aspects to be honest the majority of my critically acclaimed work that you know like 36 chambers those beats were made with no i could say no goal in the sense of or 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 can i say what's no economic goal a lot of those beats was made because I was in my house, I had my beat machine, and I'm making beats. It's fun. You know what I mean? Brain the Pain, that was made having fun. Um, Maybe after... Dude, I had a flood, <laughs> you know, that washed a lot of my tracks away, like, in 19... uh, Right before this whole... Right before the big solo, Wu-Tang solo albums, right? So maybe 94. Then, but I had made record deals with people, right? So... I had to turn out a lot of work. And I sat in that basement for years turning out a lot of work, meeting deadlines. And I I succeeded at that, and it still wasn't a lot of money. But I think when the money got involved, I think at one point, and I'm not sorry to say this uh, nowadays, at one point, you know, maybe I was getting 100 100 plus a track, right? And around that range, I'm not even making music unless you call me with that money, (laughs) you know what I mean? So the money, became the dictator of my creativity. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what I can say for nowadays, and it could be from the blessings of being able to, do, to express myself in film or the, the blessings to express myself in other mediums, that when I make music, I'm making music purely for the expression of self, purely for my own entertainment. And maybe, maybe it's the best stuff I've ever made. Maybe it's not.
4: Yeah, but it sounds like from what you're describing, your earliest and and maybe some say think your most important work, the breakthrough works, were made right. without without that pressure from the yeah. outside.
3: Yeah, I, I I had a conversation with my Wu Tang brothers about about a similar conversation, not as on a, on the a nose as this, but it was we was talking about making an album. Right, this was uh, before we did uh, our last album was called The Better Tomorrow. And, you know, I had to actually negotiate, you know, I am able brothers to get them to come and do the album, one, do one of this much, one, do one of that much. And I had to go through, it was a self-funded album in the beginning, meaning, you know, I figured I had to, I'd take a million dollars and invest it in myself, you know what I mean, into my crew. So I broke everybody off 100 Gs there, 50 Gs there, whatever. But I tried to bring it to that conversation, like, yo, it should have never cost money to make music. In the old days, the, the, the songs, like, take the song Method Man. That song came about because he came to my house on a Friday night with the weed, okay? I had an eight-track recorder in my house, had a mic. I had just made a beat because I was making beats all day. He showed up. He had a couple of comic books, two bags of weed and some blunts. He had just finished doing his, his uh, pharmaceutical work. <laughs> and he, he came for he came some downtime. He rolled it up, He lit it up, He smoked it. I put the beat on, I plugged the mic in, he did the song. In fact, the electricity went out. We had to plug into my aunt's electricity downstairs. And we recorded it, right? And that's because that's what we wanted to do. And, and a lot of the woo in the early days is that you would come to my crib and come hang out and make a song. You wanted to do it. So I'll try to remind the brothers that, yo, we used to make music because that's what we wanted to do. You came to my house. I didn't ask you to come. I didn't pay you to come. It just was the place you came to let like, loose your verse, to hang out, smoke a blunt, play some video games, watch a kung fu flick. You know what I mean? Make some music. <laughs> you know? So a lot of our early stuff, a lot of songs, even you listen to the ODB first album, the Joseph first album, uh, the 36 Chambers, a lot of that Is like remakes of what we did as kids. Yeah, like we had the foundation. Listen, Liquid Swords, that same routine in Liquid Swords when the MCs came, all that. We made that probably when we was fifteen years old with with a pause tape. You know what I mean? And then when we got the album deal, I'm like, yo, let's bring back that old routine we used to play, and we did it, and it became what it became. How old were you guys when you made the first album? Um, first album, officially, I was 21, as far as the first, just, well, just his album, you want to count that, 19, when he made Words from a Genius. Yeah, so, that, so not, not bad.
4: No. Incredible. Not bad. But you guys had already been percolating for five or six years. Yeah, yeah. Running around New York, trying. Yeah.
3: You know what I mean? Trying. You know, I got a question for you. Yeah, I got please. an issue with this. Of course. So Rock the Bells, yeah. right? You programmed the drums on that one? Yeah. And, and then how about Jack the Rapper, Jack the Ripper, with the 707 Cowbells? I
4: can't remember because I can't remember. Is that Was that on the first album or the second album? If it was on the second album, I didn't produce it. Wasn't it wasn't even on the
3: album. It was like, like a side single that I think you guys had dropped back and back. I
4: honestly can't remember. I'd have to listen back. But, I'd have to listen
3: back. Well, let me talk about Rock the Bells for a moment, if you yeah. don't mind. No, not at all. Cool. So, so Rock the Bells, one of the hardest beasts to hit the streets, okay? And really a pioneering production for hip-hop. And then the Bells, man, now that I'm a producer, I could imagine that that, hit was a guitar hit, basically. El Alco J is all that's eh, right? Yes. And it changes hip-hop. It evolves it, to be totally honest. And I'm only bringing this up to give you some points on this, right, because I remember being very egotistic about hip-hop myself. Like, you know, it took me. it took me, like, I had to go to France and I did an album called World Accord in Brazil in the year 2000. And I had to travel around all these different countries and do music, right? And I'm seeing rappers everywhere. And I realized hip-hop is a worldwide thing. But it did have its roots in America, right? But at one point, people said hip-hop was black music. Wait a minute. And I said in an interview, wait a minute. And I was, and I'm glad that I was right. I said, Rick Rubin <laughs> made rock the bells, okay? That's in the early phases of hip-hop. So I'm not going to say that it's a black or white music because Charlie Chase and, 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 the, and, the, and uh, the Fearless Four, he had Tito in the group. We got Rick Rubin producing the early drums on LL Cool J, probably run DMC, okay? Point I'm making is that you got the Latin brother, you got the white brother, you got the black brother, all making hip-hop. So, when I so when I was going through, you know, going through that to the to these countries, you know, they was like, yeah, black, you know, black. I said, hold on, hip hop. We can't say it's an American, right? We used to say American before. We said it because actually, it's been pioneers from every aspect of our culture. Hip hop is actually a melting pot of our culture.
4: It's true, and but maybe I, the- I will say in the early days. I always felt like the only white person in the room for a long time.
3: Right. Look, you know what? In the early days, even in my hood, there was only one white dude that lived in the projects. But that was our man. Yeah. You know, if you got dark chocolate, you put one spoonful of milk in it, it breaks it down a little bit. You know what I mean? So point, um, the point being made is that hip hop is, 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 was one of the first, not one of the first, but definitely part of the American culture that is emerging of different people from walks of life. You know what I mean? Now, now, the Asian influence may have not been identified or identifiable or in it. And it came in, but it, but it was in it in a, in a very mysterious way. If you go back and talk to Grandmaster Flash and you talk to some of these guys, you realize that some of their names, some of their vibes, they come from Kung Fu movies, right? You go back and you talk to uh, some of the break dancers, you'll see that they picked up a couple of moves from some of the 42nd Street Kung Fu movies, right? But still, it, didn't, but it wasn't identifiable. Then Wu-Tang comes and we put it right in the music. Basically, hip-hop is that culture that allowed the entire spectrum of American culture to exist creatively and combine and then eventually become the
4: culture of the world. What was the, what was the hip-hop scene that you grew up in like what what were you seeing around
3: for me the first time i heard hip hop was on Staten Island 1976 it was a dj named dj jones uh another guy named was quincy these, these are unknown djs who 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 unknown to the rest of the world and uh and then an mc named mc punch and they would bring their system out between the building 240 and 260 Park Hill. There was a parking lot there. They would plug up and they would do their jams. How many people would come? Maybe, you know, 80, 90, even if 100 people. The whole, because it's, it's Park Hill. So everybody from all the kids from all the builders would come. I shouldn't be out there. I got my ass whipped for being out there because I'm, I'm seven, eight years old, mesmerized, hypnotized by the music. And what he was playing was Apache. That beat, that vibe, it, made, it was whatever. That song made me want to get on the floor and roll around. <laughs> you see? And the first thing I did was I tried to learn how to do, it wasn't even called breakdancing, right? It was called freestyle. Freaking, freaking off, do the freestyle. You know what I mean? And so that was my first thing. But then when the rapper was like, dip, dip, dive, so socialized to clean out your ears, then you open your eyes. Right? That, that was a, probably a rap that he probably got from somewhere else. Who knows? Right? Because so many rappers said it. But it hit me. And my cousin Juzza, a couple of years older than me, he's the one that took me to the block party. He was already writing lyrics at that time. You know what I mean? Because I was living down south for a few years. So I just got back from down south. So imagine this. I'm coming back from down south. From seven years old, going on eight. I hear this music, I'm mesmerized. How how Um,
4: how popular was the music at that time? Would you say everyone
3: your age liked it, or no? I won't. I don't know if everyone my age liked it, but I think no more than 150 people knew how to do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Small
4: community. It was a small, still a a very small community.
3: Small community. Jusser told me he got it from he learned it from the Bronx, from Soundview Projects. He had a cousin. Up the Soundview projects, he would go to their house, and people would bring out sound systems there, and they would do it. That's what hit him. So, so my style really could be traced back to the Bronx, from the Jizz. You know what I mean? He brought it to now. Island, um, and then, of course, you know, by the age of nine, I started writing lyrics. But and hip hop is still new; it's never been on the radio yet. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think even WBLI. Uh, or uh, HBI, HBI, whatever, I don't, HBI, WHBI hasn't, hasn't hit it yet. No I Mr., remember them B- pre-Mr. Magic. It. No Mr. Magic, no Supreme Team. Yeah. But you're still talking 78, 79. Now Sugar Hill game comes in 79. But anyway, there wasn't a lot of people doing it, to answer your question. And it was mostly ca- DJs catching a break beat. The samplers wasn't happening. I remember the first time I heard a sampler. I mean, I, you know, of course, Marley in the early days, but that's like Marley's what, 84, 85 now? The year he comes in?
4: And what, what, year, what year is Rock the Bells for us? I don't know. I'm not good with dates. But, but I, know, okay. I do know that when we made those first records, there was not a sampler yet. We
3: didn't yet have a sampler. Exactly. No sampler. Exactly. So that's the point i make no samplers. So it's just the break beat, the DJ cutting it in. Maybe you had a four track. Right? Yeah. And so it was primitive. And, but I do remember hearing Flash. Grandmaster Flash had a song called Flash. on the beatbox, like an. yeah. And me and Dirty went to 14th Street, because 14th Street had all the electronic stores. Remember that? Of course. And, and we tried to go and find what the heck was a beatbox. And, it, and what we ended end up getting was one of those rhythm boxes that they use in church for Rhythms. Yeah. And we now I don't know if that's the was is that what this class was talking about? No. I don't know.
4: I don't think so. Exactly. I don't think so. But maybe, maybe. Well, that's the first thing I ever had. Those were like like rhythm like rhythm king. It's like it just has like a bunch of buttons to pick the style yeah. of beat. You don't you don't program a beat. You don't program it. It has pre programmed beats. But if you hit two and you can just control yeah. the tempo.
3: Control the tempo. But if you press two of them together, yeah. It will do something awkward. Absolutely. Or if you keep holding the fill-in button. Yeah. Yeah, so that was the first, that was my first way of trying to produce. I had two turntables and one of those beat rhythm boxes. And then one day, there's a guy on Staten Island named Philly Phil, right? He comes outside with a 606 drum machine. Now, I mean, that changed the game. But we thought that was the masterpiece, right? Right. But then Dr. Rock of the 4 MDs or 4 MCs, I don't know. You remember DJ Dr. Rock? Yeah. So Dr. Rock, he comes out with a 707. So this is 19. Now I'm, I'm going, I might, I might be in 1982 now. I'm in 82. 1982, 83. The 707 is on the block. Dr. Rock has it. And he invites me, Jizza, and ODB over to do a demo. I'm 14 years old, y'all, at most. And we recorded a demo, and we just felt like we was headed, we was going to be on top of the world. And this was before the Force MDs had their Tommy Boy deal. They will going to get a Tommy Boy deal for another year, maybe. So anyway, point being made is that the 707 was like the machine to have. And then I had a DJ on Staten Island named Scotty Rock, right? Not to be, not to be confused with Scott LaRock, yeah. <laughs> but his name was Scotty Rock, and he came he bought the 909. He had a pair of S, he had a pair of 1200 techniques and a 909 drum machine. And I stayed at his house every day after school making beats and making demos with him and another guy named B-Dub. And we had another guy from uh, my high school named DJ Skane uh, who uh, also um, had, the, had a dope echo machine. Had the, he, he's, the one that he, actually he's the one that had the Yamaha 4-track. You know what I mean? And I borrowed it. I borrowed this and borrowed that and borrowed that and brought it all to my house. And I just started making neighborhood albums. Me and ODB would make albums and, and put them out in the hood. But that's, that's my earliest memory, memories of hip-hop, you know, going back from 8 to 14.
4: I have to ask you, what was ODB like as a kid?
3: Wow. Beautiful, funny, crazy. Uh, at this age, let's say around the age of 9, 10, 11... Um, he, live, he lives in Brownsville then he ends up moving to East New York but I want to point out he was one of those kids that we had this thing called cat agility so cat agility means you're, you got to jump from one balcony to another, run up the walls and all this, this is before parkour <laughs> it, it is basically the foundation of parkour and Old Dirty was nice at it yo. was it, you know was it I mean? inspired by the Kung Fu movies? It may have been... I just feel like kids... It's like some kids just always start doing something. You know how kids are. We, you know, can you jump from this bench to this? Yeah. How about this to this? And then every day, it got more and more. next thing you know, it's five kids and we all running in a row. And I was running with them. I wasn't no, never as good as him. He was like a natural. He could run up the wall and do a flip. So when break dancing came out, he could do the windmill. I had to set the pop lock and I could not move the floor. <laughs> and... You know, he got into hip-hop first as a DJ. You know what I mean? I kind of forced him to be an MC. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, I was his younger cousin, but I, had, I was taller, you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> and I,
3: <laughs> and I had, a, had, had a little spirit, like a little pushy spirit, I think, at, at that age. I, I had got knowledge of myself at 11 and a half. You know what I mean? So, you know, by the time I'm 14, I'm already you know, young Malcolm X mind, you know what I mean? And, and that energy kind of uh, was pushy.
4: How did, how did you decide to form, uh, when I think of Wu-Tang, for me, it's the first group of its kind. It doesn't feel like a continuation of a lineage. But for you, who did you, did you feel like it was part of a lineage of groups that had come before?
3: To be honest, it felt, I mean, look, there's other groups I got to give respect to. Cold Crush Brothers, like I said, Fantastic Freaks, or the, Fantas- you know, the Fantastic Five, uh, the Furious Five, uh, Treacherous Three, Killless Four. I mean, I give all respect to those brothers. But I didn't see Wu-Tang Clan as none of that. It's not. It's, it's nothing no. like those. It was more of a Kung Fu clan. Mm. You know what I mean? So there's, there's certain movies that just really touched me when I was young. You know, there's a movie called The... Uh, the Brave Archer, and in this movie, The Brave Archer, there's a beggar clan. There's hundreds of them, man. And, and you know them, you know? Or even Shaolin, you know, the Shaolin movies, it's like there was a movie where every Shaolin guy, Shaolin got burned down and everybody had to flee and, t- and take their secret techniques. And you only knew one when they had certain hand signals. That became like my psyche, you know what I mean? The five deadly venoms, you know what I mean? The Ten Tigers of Kwantung. In fact, The Ten Tigers of Kwantung, or Canton, if you pronounce it properly, <laughs> is probably the, uh, the movie that I could have modeled some of the Wu-Tang members as. You know what I mean? Um, and there's another movie called The Eight Diagram Pole Fighters with eight brothers all fighting for the country. Loyalists. And those two movies could be the movies that inspired me to realize that we can move as a clan. You know what I mean? Not just five deadly venoms, because five is a lot too.
4: Yeah.
3: You know what I mean? But the move as a clan, I would think that I kind of was inspired by the art of martial arts films, the chivalry, the brotherhood, the one man would die for the other. How'd you you get into martial arts films? My first movie I ever saw was uh, a Tom Sawyer Huckleberry Finn movie. uh, my second movie is Star Wars. My third movie is The Swarm. And my fourth movie is a double feature, which was a Bruce Lee movie called A Furrier of the Dragon, which was just an edited movie of all his Kato things put together, and Black Samurai with Jim Kelly. Right? Those are my first five movies. And if you look at me as a... If you look at what that means to me, the Force is my spirituality. <laughs> right, lightsaber. uh, The Swarm, killer bees, Wu-Tang killer bees, okay? The kung fu movies is all in my blood. You know what I mean? And I think the writing of Mark Twain and the storytelling is all in my blood. I think those early movies really, like, imprinted something on me. And plus the people who I was seeing them with. I was seeing them with my, my uncle, who was... uh just, you know, a father figure in my life. He's the one that, that took the time to take me to see a movie, you know? And we talk, you know, the, the, the man who would take you to the movie and talk to you after the movie was over, which I now do with my children. Now. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't just watch a movie. We watch it and after the movie's done. We sit down and we spend 15 to 30 minutes, maybe even an hour, depending on the movie, and we talk about it. So those movies probably uh, have the big inspiration, but the Kung Fu movie had the biggest. And uh, so then my cousin Vince had took me down to 42nd Street, it was a Kung Fu triple feature. (laughs) So you could imagine for $1.50. And so that became my, my, my stimulation to the point that by the time I was a teenager, me and ODB, we would play hooky in those theaters. You know, we was those kids in the theaters with a joint cut in school, watching movies.
2: We'll be back with more from RZA after a quick break.
1: Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms
5: apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: How much would you say um, th- smoking influences your creativity?
3: That's a great question, right there. Um, and I got to be honest, right? I started creating before I was smoking. I created a lot during my smoking. I got into an argument with my little brother about five years ago. Uh, my little brother, he's in a group called Killer Army, and you know, he's, 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 he's uh, maybe eight years, nine years younger than me. And so he's the guy that looked at me, learned from me, and continues in hip hop. You know, he wanted, you know, he's, he, he's, he, I'm I'm like his big brother that he's copying. And the more I got into drugs, the more he got into drugs. If I smoked it, he smoked it. Okay. Whatever I did, he did. If I chewed it, he chewed it. And, uh, I stopped. About five years ago, I don't, like, I, haven't, you know, I don't even smoke weed right now, bro. You know what I mean? I just chilled out. Like, I'm good. Like, if I smoke weed now, it has to be a total celebration of something great. Like, I got to get the Grammy or the Oscar or <laughs> something really great for me to say I'm going to celebrate with that, with that drug. Uh, and, and nothing against it, I smoked enough for, for two lifetimes. <laughs> but, but the point I want to make is that he was like, yo, cause I told him you should quit. You know, you should quit, especially the hard drugs. You should quit them. And he was like, nah, man, you crazy? All the greats, man, made this shit off of drugs. Jimi Hendrix, James Brown, Janet Joplin. You start naming motherfuckers. So even you. And I said, wait a minute. Let me think about that. I said, nah, I made 36 Chambers sober. Because remember, I was on trial. I couldn't get high. And I just kept making music and doing things sober. I said, naturally, I made my company. Everything I did was, the best me was the sober me, right? He was like, he didn't believe me. I said, yeah. Then I said, you know what, two nights, when I went to do my movie, Man with the Iron Fist, I sobered up. I had to be, I wrote it. I went to China, no drugs in China anyway. (laughs) I stayed there for nine months and I directed a film. I couldn't afford to be high. And I was able to activate all my creative abilities. So I'm only saying that I've made a lot of music while Bobby Digitals and all type of shit, bro. But I honestly got to say, and I can speak from the truth, that my creative energy is not generated from drugs. It's it's a self-generating desire to create. And like I said, I made 15 beats so far on this uh, quarantine. No drugs in my house, bro.
4: Tell me about what was it like living in China for nine months?
3: Thanks for asking. But that was a, the first word I'm going to say, lonely. And there's not a lot of blacks over there, bro. I saw like two blacks in nine months. You know what I mean? Unless they, unless they came over with me. You know what I mean? Not a lot of us over there. I'll tell you how lonely it was. Now, we could say in America, we got racism. All right? If, if, you know an average black guy dressed in my hoodie style and I, I may dress. If I come across an average white guy, he might feel like, yo, what this dude gonna do, right? I'm in China, bro, at an elevator, about to go to my room, whatever, sitting there, and here comes a white guy, average white guy, from the Midwest. He, he hits the button. He looks at me. I look at him. How you doing, man? My name is Bob. Hey, what's the name? We became (laughs) (laughs) immediate friends, bro. Yeah. Because, first of all, you're not even hearing English, okay? And we talked about sports. He was out there. That's what you're doing out here. He said, I'm out here with the Ford Ford Corporation building a whole new plant. I'm here to, I'm building a plant. That's what you're doing. So I'm I'm making a movie. We became friends, yo. Now, no, maybe in America, that wouldn't have happened. He would have got in the elevator, got off. But it was so lonely that even to hear somebody speak your own language and understand the culture of what America is, because it's a different... We have a unique culture, bro. Good, bad, or ugly is different. You know what I mean? And when I was over there, I, I, I recognized that. I felt that. Describe a bit about
4: that culture. Like, what, what are some of the differences for those of us who haven't been?
3: Well, on a, on a micro... On a, I'm going to go macro first. On a macro level, it's almost like everything looks like it's... Like the building looks like the building is going to be... You walk in the building, it's going to be the same, right? But it's not going to be the same because the culture It's a communist country, bro. Okay? You're dealing with communism. That means that the freedom of speech, the freedom of what you want to say, it's not really like that. You can't say it. Like, I couldn't say... They, like, they had to check my script and make sure that I was saying the right shit, yo. Now, I respect that. I respect their culture. But if you want to know about censorship and, and being controlled at the highest level, well, that's what they do. You know what I mean? And it's law.
4: Any of the things that were you were not allowed to do, anything that you said or any themes in the movie that were questioned? Yeah.
3: I couldn't, I couldn't say Shaolin in my movie. Because? Because Shaolin is historically a place in China that's historically real. And so they didn't want me to dampen their culture by saying Shaolin in my movie on a story that wasn't real to Shaolin. Now, I don't know why, because I don't see 100 movies. <laughs> with different stories about Shaolin. And I've been to China various times. So I went on a pilgrimage to China as well. And when I went on that pilgrimage, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because I went to Shaolin Temple. I went to Wu-Tang Mountain. And, and, and the history of their culture, of what they preserved in their culture, is, is, a, is a blessing for the entire world because they got history 4,000 years still con- contained. Beautiful. And when I went there, it's not commercialized. Well, when I went, it wasn't commercialized yet. Shaolin became a little commercialized based on a lot of movies and a lot of tourism. Wu-Tang mountain it's hard to get to, first of all. It's not as easy to get to as Shaolin. And when I went there, it was real interesting because they had a different type of serenity about them. You know, so Wu-Tang Mountain is considered the birthplace of Tai Chi. Zingy, uh, and Bakwa, of course. And the, the, the monks there, although they're not celibate, they don't practice celibacy, but they practice internal before external. Right? And it shows in their demeanor because their smile starts from their belly, and it comes out their face. You know what I mean? And it was big, strong smiles, big, strong energy. If I didn't have a family, and this is going to sound funny, because it's only happened to me twice in my life. Now my am sharing these both with you. If I didn't have a family and children back home, I would never have left. I felt almost like Superman would have felt when he left Krypton and landed on Earth. That happened to me at the Wu-Tang Mountain. And then it happened to me when I was uh, when I visited Africa, when I went to visit Ghostface, he was in Africa and I had to go. I promise him if he'd go, I would visit him. And so I visited him. <laughs> promise I had to keep. But something about the way the sun was hitting me, it felt like wow, I understand what Superman feels like.
4: So the Star Wars, the force in Star Wars was your first introduction in spirituality?
3: Tell yeah, me basically.
4: F- Beyond the, the
3: Baptist Church.
4: Yeah, well, <laughs> tell me about that. Like, tell me about all of your, the roots of your spirituality from the beginning.
3: Well, yeah, first of course, the Baptist Church, you know, I went to church. My mother sent me to church. My uncle took me to church. Well, my uncle who took me to church, um, the same uncle who took me to see Star Wars, the church was scary to me. You know what I mean? When people start falling out, screaming, Holy Ghost and all that, man, I didn't want to spend no parts of that. Okay.
4: Was it a very musical
3: um, service that you went to? Yeah, it was musical services. But somebody always caught the Holy Ghost, bro. And I'm like, how could a ghost be holy? You know what I mean? And I'm looking, you know what I mean? You got to think, the exorcist is out too. All right? So you know, the Holy Ghost don't add up to me. But I didn't understand what that meant. And I didn't understand how they was displaying it. So that pushed me away. Star Wars attracted me. Yeah. Okay, so that's my first, like, personal attraction. The church was forced on me. Yeah. Uh, Then years later, of course, still church was being pushed on me until around the age of 11, 11 and a half, my cousin Jizza taught me about the mathematics and about Islam. And it was there that I began to study. And by studying Islam and studying our lessons, our lessons mentioned Buddhism. It mentioned the Indians. It mentioned Jesus. It mentioned the Prophet Muhammad. You know what I mean? And so, since it, uh, so, so being that it mentioned all those religions, I began to research those religions and understand. You know, because in our lessons, it, it's like in the lessons, it mentions the Bible. There's a verse in the Bible. It's the, from the book of Ezekiel. If you read the book of Ezekiel, whoa, what a book. OK, there's also a lesson from the, from the book of Matthew, or another beautiful book. But then it tells about then it's a, a lesson about Buddhism. It's like, wait a minute. So so I had to study that. But I got deeper into Buddhism and Taoism because when I seen 36 Chambers of Shaolin, there was a quote in the movie that just pierced my heart. And the quote was the five colors blind every eye.
4: Repeat, repeat that one more time.
3: He said, the five colors blinds the eyes. The five tones deafens every ear. Without wisdom, no gain. That was in a movie. That sent me right to Chinatown looking for books. Yeah. <laughs> and I found a couple, you know what I mean? Um, and I and, and I've never turned away from that. Always kept researching that, um, and that led to Taoism.
4: How did how did Juzzi get into the mathematics? Do you know?
3: I think I think I, my cousin Life from out of Queens may have inspired him, and that's as far as far as I know, as far as the root of it. You know, so it started with Life. That's what he from his verbal from him telling me, and then him telling me. And what, 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 the reason why the mathematics... Was it through
4: Nation of Islam at that point, do you think? Yeah. Because that, it, that it, was it, around it at the different. time. Like, that's what was hot in the yeah. neighborhood.
3: Yeah, it had to be the Nation... I mean, Nation of Islam is a foundation. And then uh, for, uh, a man named Clarence 13 X. Smith breaks away from the Nation of Islam, and he starts teaching it right to the youth. I think what he did, if we could talk about that, is that usually if you're in the Nation of Islam... And I don't know, I can't... So I'm speaking this by... Uh, here, sir, this is not personal experience. I haven't joined the Nation of Islam to know this, but from what I was told in the Nation of Islam, you have to go through like a period of time or a period of service before you're given 120 lessons, right? And that it could take you five years to get that, ten years even, or, you know whatever it takes. The father took those lessons and put them in the hands of the youth in one day. Okay. You could study at your own pace. I learned the whole 120 lessons in 7 months. By the time I was 12, I knew it. That's you know, there's grown men who didn't know it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the beauty of it, I think, is that it just allowed it pushed me into deep study. But let me share something that the mathematics did, right? It had this lesson that I heard people talking about, like, in the neighborhood. Yo, you got the 12 jewels, you got the 12 jewels. Everybody would say this, right? And I'm like, what, what are they talking about, 12 jewels? And I lived in Brooklyn, Brownsville at the time, so 12 jewels, I thought they were saying the 12 Jews, Like, 12 Jews, right? Because that's, that's what it sounded like, the 12 Jews. And, it, and at the same time, my mother had gave me a gift of Bible stories, right? So I'm around, I'm around 11 years old, and I'm, I'm reading about Job, Uh, Abraham, Lot, uh, Samuel, David, Solomon. I'm I'm, I'm reading about all these great, great, great men, right? And and, and these small Bible stories. I'm memorizing this stuff. The one thing about me, Rick, I got a a, a good memory. So I'm memorizing this stuff. And then they say the 12 Jews. I'm thinking like the 12 sons of Jacob was 12, right? (laughs) You know? So but it wasn't 12 jewels. I mean, Jay, Jay. it was jewels. Yes. And those 12 jewels was knowledge, wisdom, understanding, freedom, justice, equality, food, clothing, shelter, love, peace, happiness. Beautiful. And it said, if a man obtains that, he's truly wealthy. And I went on a mission to obtain that. You know what I mean? And uh, I feel like I got it. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, food, clothing, and shelter, as long as there's food on the table, clothing on your back, and some type of shelter, you good, yo. You know what I'm saying? I know I've been blessed, you know, to have a nice home. You know what I mean? But even when I was 14 years old, living in an apartment with 19 people, because I had those 12 jewels in my heart, I was still good. Sleeping on the floor, you know what I mean, next to three other people. It didn't, it, it ne- I never was unhappy. You know what I mean? So those things are, are more valuable than uh, some of these physical material things.
4: Yeah, it's like the, uh, the outer pleasures are much more temporary than the inner wisdom.
2: We'll be back with more of Rick's Conversation
1: with Rizza after the break. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 a month, less much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical
5: journey today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H track, all wheel drive, and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild, conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business
0: and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to the Unshakeables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024,
2: JPMorgan Chase and Company. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Riza.
4: So technically, on the new beats you're making, technically, how are you doing it? What, what equipment are you using?
3: Oh, um, I'm using MPC still as the, as, the, as the brain of things. But I play with all the programs. You know, I may play with uh, Logic. I play with uh, Ableton. Um, I got a great keyboard that I'm, I'm really loving right now called the Waldorf. It's a great synth. I like doing the physical synths. You know what I mean? So, um... I use the physical sims. I got my... Uh, I got the, um, the uh, Arturia. Has a great synth as well called the uh, Brute. Uh, and just really those two synths mixed with the NPC. Uh, and, of course, I got my DJ set up. So, yeah, you know. And a few other toys. I keep, I keep toys. <laughs> but the NPC is, is the brain right now.
4: And what's your... Uh... Crate digging. How does how do you find how do you find samples and inspiration for well, music?
3: Well, well, I sample maybe only thirty percent now. Mm-hmm. So like, like I kind of like sample on the weekends <laughs> because I DJ. So I started playing the music DJ and I go, oh wow. But fortunately, I was able about ten years ago to transfer most of my library into into digital. So, you know, I think I got about, uh, I mean, I got, as far as my personal transfer library, I probably got about 40,000 songs. And then Shavo, my buddy, she knows Shavo. Of course. Shavo from
4: Bass Player of System of a Down.
3: Exactly. He gave me for my birthday because when I I started hanging up with Shavo, I was unfamiliar with heavy metal and rock. I wasn't good at it. I knew a few, you know. He gave me an iPad for Christmas one year of 30,000 songs that covered that genre. And I just downloaded all that into my computer. So I'm sitting on, you know, hundreds of thousands of songs that's already on my hard drives. And that's my digging technique. I just go through all the songs. You know what I mean? Um, I still got about, you know, I still got some a lot of boxes of vinyls that's back East. And when I go back East, I normally dig through vinyl because I had the blessings of getting economics and getting able to travel around the world. So I bought boxes of records almost every stop. You know what I mean? I got a box from Italy that's all 70s Italian. Incredible. Rock, funk, soul. Yeah, because they cover all this shit with their bands. So the intro is different. The vibe is different, you know what I mean. So, and every once in a while, I'll dig through that stuff and find a loop, you know what I mean. But you know, hopefully, I ain't got to clear them, right? But I do clear. I clear my samples. <laughs> Let me get a couple of questions in on you. Yeah. First drum machine.
4: Um, first drum machine was an 808, and it was not mine. It was I was going to NYU, living in the dorm. There was a kid named Eric who was in a band, uh, like a new wave band called the Speedies, who played at places like Danceteria or the, you know, Roxy, the maybe not the Roxy, the Ritz, like those kind of clubs. Yeah, I remember the Ritz. Yeah, Uh, maybe Mud Club if you remember that downtown. Uh, But they played in more like alternative music clubs, and uh, and even though he was in a rock band, he had an eight oh eight drum machine, Um, and this was there had. 808s had not really been used in hip-hop yet. Uh, And there wasn't really so much hip-hop. The culture existed, but there weren't so many records. All there were were 12 inches. Right. And the 12 inches that there were, more often than I think, I'm trying to think if there were any exceptions, it was almost always a band-played track. Because even though, like, if you went to a hip-hop party, what you'd what you'd hear in, at a hip-hop party would be breakbeats and scratching and maybe a DJ using a drum machine. I mean, maybe Grand Wizard Theodore was the first one I saw use a drum machine as part of his DJ set. Um, the records were still being made like disco club records, but with guys rapping on them. You know, like all the Sugar Hill, right. the Sugar Hill records were not programmed. You know, they were played by right. a band, a house band. Uh, Even the Enjoy records were played by a house band. So I bought these records wanting it to sound like what I heard at the club. And it never did. It always sounded like a band playing and a guy rapping. Where the thing that first excited me about the music was the DJing more even than the MCs. You know, it's like, I I love the Treacherous Three and they were exciting as MCs. It was nice. Yeah. As MCs, yeah. But when I got to see... You know, Jazzy J cutting up breaks, beat, beat, you know, break records and the Octopus records, if you remember. Yep, I got, yep, the Octopus records, yep. Incredible. So that felt more like what hip hop was to me. And again, I'd buy these records every week and none of them sounded like that. So when I, so I decided to start making them, not, I never thought of it in any commercial way. I never knew that anybody would like it. I just tried to make a record that sounded like the club that I went to. Wow! Almost like a documentarian, you know. Like I just want right. to, I want to hear this sound. I don't get to hear this sound,
3: and um, and then it kind of spread from there. So, now one of my crazy... I mean, of course, all the BCs. I know you produced all that, and that all that shit was crazy. The first album, yeah. Yeah, that, of course, that first. I'm talking about that first album. Yeah. First of all, I was so when y'all had the horns. Right, that was the, the break beat was called the horns. But what, what's the real name of, of it, though? I don't know. Burm, 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 burm. I was like me, me, and the old. Cause see, we was also going to the going to those record stores, buying all the octopus breaks, put them on our four tracks, making our demos. Yeah. Right, no sampler. so you got to cut it. The DJ got to cut it on the four track. Yeah. Then the rapper raps on top of it after. Yeah. Right, and we was trying to get. Uh, but when y'all came with that, uh, man, it was like. They did it first. It was one song. No, no, because you know you, you we, we all dreaming. Once I heard Sugar Hill Gang on the radio, that's where I was headed. I will say that when I heard them on the radio, I knew that's where I was. I had to be one day. One day, that's what I'm going to be. I knew it was possible. But anyway, you know, so you you produce all those ill joints and you took the great beats, mixed it with the drum machine, but on Together Forever. That's your programming? Together Forever? One DMC, Tough and the Leather?
4: It was either me or Jam Master J, and I can't remember because we would work together in the studio on all the records, and right. sometimes he would program the beat, sometimes I would program the beat. It was not
3: exclusive. Well, the coolest thing about that track was that that was all 808. And getting the 808, first of all, 808 wasn't an easy machine to program either. No. Awkward. It wasn't easy. Very... Awkward way of thinking. Getting one. There wasn't even a lot of them out there. No. So, I mean, there was more 707s than 808s, right? Yeah, 909 is more of those. But the 808s, was like, no. You, you don't have one, you're not getting one. And so I never, I never owned the 808 until
4: after I was famous. Yeah. It, was, it was considered a failed drum machine. You know, it was a, it was a flop of a drum machine when it came wow. out. Right. Because it didn't really yeah. sound like drum. The whole idea of the drum machine was supposed to sound as much like drums. So there was right. already like Lin drums and the, the DX and DMX. We had, we had a D, I think we had a DX also. And on a lot of like... That's the right? Yeah. And on a lot of the Run DMC records, we would sync up the DX and the 808 together and just pick certain sounds from each and get them to play in sync. And then it made it right. sound like a new machine you hadn't heard before because it wasn't just either one of those drum machines.
3: Right, like both, yeah. I mean, I, I recognize that, and I think Sucker MCs is a is that the BX? Tap tap tap. Because I felt like Sucker MCs was like an attempt, like a, a DJ a programming of action.
4: Yeah, that's what it was. Action. And and Russell okay. was Russell had that beat for action, and then he got Larry to program Sucker
3: MCs
4: based on. Action.
3: Okay. I, would, I always thought that as a... I'm a young DJ, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm that young DJ scratching it all day, trying, you know, a few years, a few years behind you guys just dreaming. You know what I mean? Um, but the DX, I love how that one sounded. I think the shakers on that one Great. was the
4: best. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it had that, uh, the swing function where you could right. get it to, which was really like the whole, what ended up becoming New Jack Swing Right. That machine was the, the f- funk, was yeah. the first drum machine that could create the beat that skipped in that way, that particular way. Okay, let me get you, Let me get a couple more in <laughs> on you.
3: So, no, no, because come on, Well do?
4: Uh,
3: it, we could do this forever. <laughs> so you, so you did when well, you did. I'm glad, first of all, I'm glad we got a chance to work together finally on a on a better tomorrow. I was like, man, I said, how, how can I be on the planet? and not get a chance to work with Rick Rubin, that's not, that's, that's, not, that's not supposed to be. Because I really, Rick, I really appreciate what you did for hip-hop, what you do for hip-hop, what you do for music. And, and I, I watched you, right? I watched you as an example, right? And you did something that, I mean, you know what you did, but I just want to just say out my own mouth, even after you helped build Death Jam, right? And... Can, can be, you know, I know you got people around you or whatever that helped out, but can be the spearhead who combined hip-hop and rock together, bro, okay? Even with this guitar hit on Rock the Bells to the Aerosmith songs and all this stuff that eventually became a movement that helped spread this culture, even after you separated from hip-hop, you went to and made Deaf America, right? Mm-hmm. And there, continue to push the culture. Like, I just remember some of the records that was coming out on there. I was like, it's, 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 a, it's it still has a hip-hop vibe in it. Even though the average critic didn't know what to write, you no, know, they could write whatever, but no, it's, it still had those foundations and that's because you are producing it. Yeah. Right? And, and, and then you took it from there and then we talked about Shavo, But you produced that first album for them. I produced all the System of a Down albums. Okay, come on, bro. All right? <laughs> Here, like, did you go to NYU to study music? Like, what would you study in? No. <laughs> I, I started as a philosophy
4: major and then switched to film and television because all of my friends were in film and television. It just seemed like the classes were more fun. So I just switched. Watch, wow. I'd rather watch movies than discuss philosophy at that point in time. Right.
3: <laughs> that's crazy because you think about all the records you produce that you know, that's Grammy winning, ground groundbreaking like if, if, if somebody go, and of course you know, you know, people bring you up to the you know say the Dixie Chicks, whatever whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But if somebody was to just say if, if, if somebody, like take 50 years 100 years, 20 years from now, somebody start off with one of your 66 songs, right? How deep they got to dig or how would their consciousness go, wait a minute, this is the same guy who made Rock the Bells. They, you know what I mean? They, and hip-hop, you know, certain hip-hop like myself, like, you know, when Jay-Z came to you for 99 Problems, we understand that. But I think a lot of motherfuckers don't understand this trajectory in this role, you've, you've traveled and you've paid. Because when I look at me, I did an album with Paul Banks, um, uh, last year, uh, a couple of years ago. I think two, we did it in 2016, came out 2017, right? Yeah. But Paul Banks and Stills, but it still is just on a road you carved already. If you see me and the Black, remember me and the Black Keys doing songs together, right? we didn't release it, but I remember they took it, they, 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 they took it, they said, we're going to take it to Rick and see what he thinks. <laughs> because they, if, if, if you don't like it, it ain't working. You know what I mean? But the point being made is that you actually pioneered um, this melding. You know what I mean? So I just want to thank you for that because as a composer, uh, you know, I have to do that anyway. And I always felt like at one point, and I at one point, I was strictly hip hop, bro. I got nauseous from R and B, right? And I didn't understand what rock was. What rock was because I didn't equate break beats with rock. But meanwhile, I'm cutting up honky tonk, woman. I'm cutting up Sarone rocking in the pocket. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm cutting up uh, Back in Black, ACDC. I'm cutting all that up. Another one bites the dust. Now I think another one bites the dust. He was inspired by the other. I think that was a verse. I think that might have been reverse inspiration. Might have been. On that one. I think. Yeah. But regardless, I'm cutting up these, these joints. All right. You know what's when I'm cutting up that's that yeah, I don't know we lost them this year. We lost them. Rush, Tom Sawyer. Nobody never really came off with that track yet. There's never really been a, been a total hip hop song off of that. I think three or four of them never released them. Cause I thought that break. Tom Sawyer. Your mother name, bro? Yeah, I mean. So meanwhile, I'm not knowing that rock is always part of it. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of our drums and break beats is coming from rock. We're not realizing it. Um, but the man who I think did realize it is you. And I think you constantly added it to, to the music, yo. I, I'll say that.
4: I I rarely looked it at it by genre. It was more the feeling that it gave me. You know, like I'll say, as a as a genre, I never really listened to r and I never really liked r and but I love James Brown and I love Barry White. You know, so like right. it, so. But as a as a style, it didn't speak to me. But the cases spoke to me. Same is true in hip hop. I don't like all hip hop. I like certain right. flavors. As a matter of fact, after leaving Def Jam and stopping doing hip hop for a while, I i felt—I I, I don't know if—I um, don't know if we ever talked about this before, but like, when, when I started making hip hop, it was a very creative time in hip hop. Everyone who was doing it was finding their own way of doing it, and if you listen right. to the the like the master mix shows on BLS or HBI uh, or uh, or Kiss at that time during the Def Jam time early the the mix shows set, which was the only place you heard hip-hop by the way it wasn't on the regular station it would yeah, only it be on, on the mix hours. show
3: you got one or two hours
4: baby yeah. so if you listen to the mix show the records didn't sound alike they all sounded different they were interesting right. eclectic takes on what hip-hop could be and once the def jam records got very popular I started listening to the mixed shows and they just started sounding like all our records, whether we made them or not, it just felt like right, it makes and it, sense. And it felt like, well, this community, this community of people making interesting things isn't doing that anymore. Now they're just trying to follow the one that people liked. And that's, it's boring. You know, it's like, it's almost like a conversation, you know, like you, you put out something and then somebody puts out something you know, maybe not inspired by, but like, they got a glimpse into what was possible because of something you made, and then they made something completely different and just as interesting, and then that right. would excite you. It's like, oh wow, I never thought of it like that.
3: That means right. that means we could go way over here now. Right.
4: So it's it's a it's like a.
3: So it died. That part of it died out. Died it out died so
4: out. You- so I kind of lost interest at that point. And I, and that's okay. when I started making more rock records. And then okay. the two um the, the two artists who got me excited about hip-hop again were NWA and Wu Tang. Mm. Those were the next oh, wow. that was where, like, oh, somebody cares again. Do you know what I mean? Like right. somebody's not right. just doing the same thing. Someone's there are new voices and it's exciting. Mm.
3: Well thank you for that, bro. It's truth. Thank you for being one of those people. Because I will say what I will say as a producer, what I thought I was doing, or what I I didn't, and I love my, my hip hop peers. I didn't want nobody to say that my record was nothing else but hip-hop. You know what I
4: mean?
3: Yeah. I think hip hop after a while, we started wanting to be something else. You know what I mean? Like you remember people, like everybody would put a reggae record on their on the album, or R&B record on the album, or you know, because once LL made the love song, everybody got to make a love song. You know, it started. Like I said, people started cookie cutting. it. I was like, no category for me, but hip hop, <laughs> and I'm gonna give a fuck what nobody's doing. I don't care what they're doing. Like you know, that's that's a that's a bold thing. And you and you know what? I think you. I think as I can say for myself, you actually lose that somewhere down the line. I lost that. You know, I lost that, like I said, when they started saying 100000 a beat. You know what I mean? And it started being like, you know, I guess when the, I guess I think when the radio grabbed control again, because the radio had lost control for a little while, too. Yeah. When they grabbed control again, it was like, you got to make it for the radio. You got to be on this station. You know, I didn't even know, like, I learned later on that Hot 97 turned the hip-hop station that when they turned to the hip-hop station, it was based on the success of Woo. I learned that later. Wow. Yeah, it was That's a incredible. dance station. But the Wu songs was getting so much requested that it helped change their format. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and then at a, but, you know, but by the time we got to 1997, they stopped playing Wu. We got to like a war with them. But it's like, wow. And then we started trying to make something Or well, I, as a producer, uh, maybe around 1999, I would say, because 97, I still didn't care. But 1999, I started thinking, I want to make something so they could play it on the radio.
4: Yeah.
3: And it never worked for me. No. Because that's, that's
4: not why you made it in the first place. That's not no, why people not why. liked your music in the first place. It came
3: no, from... A, you led the radio. They right. didn't lead you. And you but you, like I said, it's a point... It's a, I, guess, I guess it's a part in the artist... I know it's a part of my life that you began... You have a doubt, right? You start thinking. It's, I think uh, 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 the word is called conformity. Yeah. You begin to conform to what you think is normal. And at the end of the day, you lie to yourself or you accept a lie. Yeah. And I think that happened to me. And I think uh, I realized that, you know, that think became creatively weak. If you'll notice that after the year 2000, and I had a personal thing in my life. My, you know, I lost my mother in the year 2000. I stopped. I left. In 2001, I left New York and came to Cali, basically. Uh, I just became friends with uh, Tarantino. Um, I kind of understood. I, I just kind of understood music theory myself by studying books. And I was like, I want to be a composer. I and I had composed both stories took some critical, I got critical, I got critical success out of it. Now I was like, I want to do this, and I want to, and I ended up just composing from the year 2000 up until 2005. All I did was compose movies, and then in 2005, I guess I showed up in a movie, and then they they they, said they gave me they saw put me in movies, right? And uh, and then I wanted to be a director, and I kind of studied that for like six years. And then I became a director. and and Now, as a director, I will say all my creative energy became stimulated. It was my music, my art, my visual, everything about creativity, my writing, it all was stimulated. It's it's actually, to me, the highest form of creative expression. A director who is considered an auteur, someone who who asked me to write it, all that. And so I became that, right? And I'm glad that I did. I'm satisfied in the life that it brought me. Um, but, it, but after a few years, it took me to about 2000, it took, like I said, maybe five or six years ago, it's not that long ago, that I, bec- I became creatively free again. Like I don't make music for no reason or nobody but for what RZA is doing. For listen. But if I want to be controlled, I'll go and, and, and do a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because in a movie, the character, if he's dying, he's dying. Okay? That's what it says in the script. Okay? Yeah. But musically, there's no way to control me anymore. And I feel grateful that. And not that I'm going to have a sell music again. I don't know what that means as far as on a commercial level. That don't, it doesn't it don't have to mean nothing. I'm satisfied with the idea that it's not an economical need for me to do it. Yeah. And that economically I have found the way to, to, to express art and get economics for it, which is my filmmaking career. Right.
4: It's a great place. It's, right. it's a great place to be. It's a great place to be where you can support yourself making art and then still be able to examine all of the different creative areas that are exciting to you regardless right. of whether they're, you know, whether they're for commercial purposes or not. All right. I agree, brother. Thank you. How's your relationship with the other Wu, the rest of the Wu?
3: Always at peace. Beautiful. Always at peace, man. Yeah, we're, we're, we, are, we are a brotherhood. My best example, Rick, is that I got a lawsuit. You, you got it suing me, right? And it's this, this lawsuit been going on for about three years now, maybe the fourth year. And we was in Australia last year. They did a Wu-Tang tour in Australia, Sydney Opera House. And he gets there and his credit card isn't working. And so I put my credit card, put him in the suite, take care of everything for him. And then Jesus just like, only Wu could do that. This nigga suing you and you feeding him and lending him money. I, I said, "The're doing his business. I love this motherfucker. I love my brothers, man. And we have that, you know, we, we have that love for each other. And I think, and I'm proud, I think our parents should be proud to see that this was a community. Wu-Tang wasn't just, a, you know, a bunch of guys like, you know, some, some a lot of these bands, maybe two guys didn't know each other or whatever, you know, they put together. No, this is a group of men who, at minimum, 25, 30-year relationships. Some, me and Raekwon go back to the third grade, bro. Amazing. Yeah, so that's a blessing, and it, and, it's, uh, and that part of it permeates and seems to, you know, trump anything else.
4: Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Cool, man. Thank you for talking.
3: Ah, uh, brother, thank you for having me, man. It's a blessing seeing you. Blessings to you, Rick. Bung, bung. Thanks, brother. Peace.
2: Thanks to RZA for catching up with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite RZA-produced songs by heading to brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel where you can find some great bonus material from this interview. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube slash Broken Record Podcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Nia Lobel, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.
1: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing.